The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is powered by theflycrate.com, an online fly shop. Join the Quarterly Fly Club today, your source for all things fly fishing. And wait for it films. For action-packed fly fishing videos and camera-related content, check out Wait For It Films on YouTube or at www.theweightcreativeco.com. And Broken Tippet Fly Company. Blog and fishing apparel and accessories. Check them out online at brokentippet.com. You, you, you are listening. You are listening. You are listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. What I really should have done and what I really would have liked to have uh, tried was fishing for Goliath, uh, Goliath tigerfish in Africa hmm. with a fly rod. I didn't have a fly rod. None of my buddies had a fly rod. And we caught them up to 40 pounds. And they are absolutely terrific fighters. Just absolutely spectacular hmm. and you don't get your mitts anywhere near the business end when you get them to the boat though no. <laughs> that i should have you know if i'd have had a fly rod along i would have figured out a way to make that work because it was so much fun you know for that particular fishery that was in northern zimbabwe uh, a couple of times and what we would do is go to one of the lakes and catch cichlids of all things aquarium fish oh yeah and then go float it down the river and boom it was consistent enough that i knew that if i had a fly rod that that would really do the job um for local there's very very little that beats that cutthroat fishery out at great central lake except uh casting over bait balls outside of Cape Beale, Banfield, when you've got springs and coho actively keeping the bait on the surface. Oh, yeah. And you strip through that and you get a whack and you don't know if it's a four to six pound coho or a 20 pound spring. That, that's heart stopping stuff. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by The Fly Crate. The Fly Crate is an online fly shop where you can save more on flies and gear. Shop between hundreds of unique flies and join the quarterly fly club for hand-picked fly assortments for each season. Exclusively for our podcast listeners, you can save an additional 10% on The Fly Crate by using the code FLYFISH97. Go to theflycrate.com and use the code FLYFISH97 at checkout to save 10%. Welcome to this edition of the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Really happy you chose to join us this time around. And uh, we're going to head out to a beautiful part of the world. Um, make a stop on Vancouver Island again. Out to the area of Port Alberni. We've got Matt Stabler on the line. Now, Matt... Uh, he, he knows a thing or two about fish. Fly fished uh, for a lot of years, a retired marine biologist, commercial fisherman, guided for, uh, well, salmon, halibut, big game in Alberta. And uh, I assume uh, spending a lot of time on the water still, I'm sure. Matt, thanks for coming on the show today. I really appreciate it. Well, yeah, thanks. It was a good reference to you, and uh, I was interested in what you had to discuss. It's kind of like the way of life. So why don't you walk us through your journey, man? It sounds like it's been, uh, you know, you strike me as somebody that's done a little bit of everything, but why don't you start at the beginning? And of course, this is a fly fishing centric show, and I know that you were avid for a lot of years and probably still are, but why don't you walk us through your, your fishing journey a little bit? Sure. Uh, yeah. Okay. I was, 
I was raised in an out, very, very outdoor oriented family. Uh, three generations at that point in time, I was the fourth one coming into it. So before I could almost walk, they were packing me into elk and mule deer camps in the mountains in Utah. And by the time I could walk, I had been introduced to fishing uh, in both Utah, well, Colorado, Nevada, you know, that entire block, basically, mm-hmm. uh, an awful lot in Utah and Idaho. And so yeah, by the time I was five or six years old, uh, my, I had a brother that came along a year after me. And so I think we were, I was six and he was five and we'd cut willow switches and use a short length of floating line, which we snitched from either dad or grandpa or one of my uncles. And then whatever fly at the day that we could also snitch when they weren't looking, <laughs> we'd go fishing for what they called natives, uh, uh, Western cutthroat, which were in those days fairly prolific and reasonably good sized. And, uh, there was rainbows mixed in with it. So you might say I was started off at a very, very early age of fascination. Hmm. Uh, that didn't go away. It improved. My grandfather was an excellent fly fisherman, as is my father still in his late eighties. And most of my uncles were as well. And, uh, so it, it was just a natural progression and I got reasonable at it. There was a lot better than me, but I got reasonable at it and caught my share. And then, uh, dad decided to move the family to Canada. Uh, Saskatchewan. Uh, he took on a professorship at the University of uh, Saskatoon hmm. and eventually led him to become the dean of both economics and agricultural economics. But in the meantime, we explored the rivers and lakes of northern Saskatchewan like madmen whenever we could. <laughs> it was a great way to round it out. I got to see a lot of different species that I had never seen before and learn how to catch them. And that the learning curve was seriously good. I mean, it was it was a tough go at a lot of times, but when you won, man, you had something. Well, whereabouts then, in whereabouts in Saskatchewan? When you say North Saskatchewan, whereabouts were you based? Uh, we lived in Saskatoon. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Okay. And then so we launched out of there, uh, all over the place. I did. I guided on the uh, Churchill River canoe excursions in my late teens. Uh, based on a lack of orange and we'd take the boats all the way to the Manitoba border and uh, that was a lot of fun catch actually learned you could catch walleye they call pickerel there on a fly <laughs> okay <laughs> which amazed the hell out of me <laughs> are we talking flies like jig type flies or or what man oh you just you catch them at the right time of year when they're coming into the streams and uh, rivers to spawn that you just put something out there that Ticks them off <laughs> and they smack it hard. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Oh, jackfish in the shallows and you yeah. know, whitefish in the lakes. Like, yeah, it was all really. And then, of course, they have a whole whack of stock lakes in there uh, at that point. The gems, oh, a bunch. And everything from splake to rainbows to brookies, browns, everything. Just a collage. Hmm. But the fishing for them was all really good. It was fun. Yeah. When sounds my wife, pretty diverse. Yeah, it was. Yeah, yeah, when I met my wife, that's 
she she broke in on me with she was a fisher woman because of her dad mm-hmm. and really liked it and i taught her how to hunt and we spent a lot of time in the north working those lakes <laughs> it it was the perfect setup for the two of us way back then put put, put then, me put me in some time timelines here are we talking is this 60s is this 70s ah uh, okay back to the start of it i was born in uh 58 and so it was the 60s in the states yeah and just into the 70s into canada and i went back and forth a fair bit after that Hmm. And then um, in Canada, stayed in Saskatchewan until the mid '80s, approximately, and then decided I wanted to go back to school. I'd done a myriad of jobs, and I was tired of doing jobs that bored me and didn't pay as much as I would have thought I should <laughs> get. So, said the hell with it, and uh, went back to school and uh, was studying to be a wildlife biologist at that point in time and two of my fish profs sat me down and said here's a list of 27 graduates in the wildlife program in the last two years uh here's their phone number call them talk to us tomorrow and they said what the hell are you doing and they said you've got a 3.86 g average you're running on a roll all the way through this but if you graduate as a wildlife biologist, the odds of you ever hunting to the level that you like to are not going to happen. So I, I phoned and I got a whole, I don't know, a dozen of those guys, maybe a little more. Two of them still hunted. Both of them worked right through the hunting seasons and were no longer afforded that. And I went in the next day and said to the one prof who was running that department, if I flip to fisheries should i go management or biology and he said for you do a, a background in biology and do your focus on management and that's what i did no turning back i came out of there with a 3.89 gpa on a rolled all the way through and hired the day i walked out of school well hmm. <laughs> hired three weeks before i walked out of school <laughs> i was headhunted where, where did you go lethbridge okay yeah, yeah, and the outfit that hired me was out of Red Deer, uh, Pisces Environmental Consulting, they were called. Mm. And the work we did was we, we reclaimed uh, the Catamaran River coal stuff. We did pipeline reclamations. We did enumeration projects, lots and lots of habitat work. And it was all really fascinating stuff. I'll just tell you one little tale that sort of fits with this. Sure. I had a shock by the, by the time I was in the second year with them. Uh, there was only two foremen. I was the second foreman. The other guy had been there for four years in front of me, and I just ran my through the, way through the ranks. I had a decent head for what I was doing, and I liked what I was doing, and the boss, and I really hit it off. So uh, I had a shock crew on standby, and I was going up to work the Cardinal River coal uh, stuff that we had done, the habitat reclamations. And I knew that we had a bunch of fish that had really, really done well as a consequence. A couple of locals were keeping me informed with that. So I grabbed the four weight and I went in two days in front of the shock crew. And uh, they were down in the crow's nest at that point in time, a long ways away. And I went out that first day 
and I tagged 52 rainbows with the four weight. Tagged them. <laughs> and I phoned my boss and I said, Jim, I don't need the crew here. And he goes, bump it to 60 a day. You got a week. <laughs> <laughs> so I had, I had died and gone to heaven. <laughs> <laughs> you actually were tagging them? Yes. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> That's a great story. I oh, it. it was fun, man. It was just great. So it was, the shock crew never did come. <laughs> That's funny. <laughs> Obviously. So and, uh, my best day there was 70-something. But it was nuts. And was, these things were anything from... Oh, half to two thirds of a pound, up to two and a half pounds. Wow! That's and awesome. the odd big boy, you know, like yeah. it was just brilliant. Yeah. A lot of recaptures too. I was surprised I got so many. That was eye opening. I got a lot of recaptures on on su- subsequent days. I find that interesting because that's something that we talk about sometimes on the show. Is like how often you know once a fish hits a fly, you land it. Is it gun shy for a week? Is it a month? Is it a day? Is it an hour? Is it, you know? Yeah. Well, what I, the correlation I saw was the piggies, the fatties. They would hit a day or two later, no problem. But the the snaky ones, the slender ones, they were a little more resistant to recapture. It's just something I had in my notes. I, I kind of found it interesting as hell. Yeah. 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 So if you had to look back, Matt, at like your your journey in fishing we'll get into all you've done since with whether it's commercial fishing guiding and your big game hunting for sure but if you look back specifically to fly fishing if you had to say okay this person really influenced me i learned a lot from 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 these people who who would you cite as influences uh, well it obviously came from my family to start with and they encouraged me heavily uh and as a consequence, I did an awful lot of it on my own. Um, I learned as I went. And really the next big leap after, from the family, from my own understanding, hanging around with a few buddies that were into it was when I ended up going to university. I ran into a fellow named Paul Venegard, who went on to become a national park warden. And uh, he, was, he was the best fly rod I had ever seen, bar none in my life. And him and I spent countless hours together in the crow's nest and a lot of other places, you know, like the castle and the raven, all up and down Alberta. Mm -hmm. And he taught me, and he had two buddies that were both much better than me, but not quite as good as he was. And we hung out for, oh man, four years, five years. So that was a huge influence. It really was. Uh, The next... Okay, we're missing a big time period when I went to the Arctic, et cetera, et cetera. But I'll I'll skip over that because I was the mentor up there. <laughs> they didn't know what a fly rod was. <laughs> yeah, fair. Yeah. Uh, and then when I came south, I ran into a local fellow whose name I'm not going to mention, younger than me. Uh, I don't have permission. I didn't ask him if I could hand his name out openly. But when I got here, I was struggling to catch steelhead. And uh, this fellow came along, one of my buddies, my age, actually a year older, came to me and said, you got to meet this kid. And I said, what the hell is he going to teach me? You know, what's what what am I going to learn from somebody like that? And he goes, he knows every single rock in the river. and He's caught every single steelhead in this river four times. Go with him. Hmm. So I sucked up to the kid and my fishing went from catching four five six steelhead a year 
to at the peak of that experience with that young fellow and several other buddies that live here i was the best year i had was just shy of 300 landed on the stamp wow ridiculous that was a huge influence um the next huge influence ian forbes by far the reason i joined fish bc was because forbes was on there and i had read a lot of his articles in outdoor canada yeah and i have known a series of writers in my life and i have found that how to say this properly there's an awful lot of them that are all hot no cattle yeah if you know what i mean yeah and i wanted to check out forbes and see if he was true to his writings and his nature Mm -hmm. him and i are now extremely tight buddies we talk at least once a week and he was the next level for me in the learning curve he had forgotten stuff (laughs) i had never ever played with before and he perfected my techniques a lot since then there's been nobody else to compare really with any of those that's those are some i mean you're naming some names there I really want to try and get Ian on the show at some point, but I, I know he's, um, when you say he's forgotten more than you know, I, uh, he's been, he's been writing for a lot of years. How old would Ian yes. be now? Would he be roughly? He's 83 or 84 okay. this year. Yeah. But I mean, you're definitely, you're naming some names, some influences. That's really cool. So I want to get back to the water, but first I want to get to know your neck of the woods. You ready for a few questions, Matt, that uh, sure. m- might not have a lot to do with fishing. Sure. Let, are, are you a music guy? Let's talk tunes. So if you're headed to the stamp or if you're headed to your favorite stretch, what's playing in the truck on the stereo? Uh, rock and roll from the 50s through the 70s or dusters, westerns, country and western, same time period. Yeah, good stuff. Almost exclusively. <laughs> there is a little bit of newer stuff I listen to, but not much. Is that on? Is that on CD radio, or you got the satellite uh, going? What's going on? That's on. That's on CD. Uh, I, oh, and I got this a stick that I just plug into the front of the oh, yeah. stereo in the truck. Yeah. What do you What are you driving? Uh, Ford F one fifty. Yeah. Big engine in it. I'm going to be getting rid of it this fall. Yeah. Uh, the gas prices have gone totally inane. And a few years back, I bought my wife a smaller car. That's all we're using. The truck almost never gets moved anymore. I just, I don't want to fuel it. I just don't want to fuel it. So I'm going to go to something smaller. Uh, my buddy Tad, who lives in Tadpole on Fly BC, lives in uh, Kona. He's got a really super efficient little four-wheel drive that we hunt out of when I go bow hunting with him every year. And he said he's probably going to be able to find me one. So Good. that's the next target. Right on. Um, one fly pattern you can't live without. So, um, I mean, l- let's get back to the river days, you know, the raven, the crow's nest, the w- one go-to fly pattern more often than not that you'd be tying on. Uh, it depends. <laughs> it depends on the system, depends on the target, you know, like if you, if you were fishing the crow's nest system and doing it at dusk, you had to have a Terranarsis nymph. You had to, I mean, that because those things, they're monsters. And the funny thing with them, the harder you splat the surface, the faster they run at it. <laughs> yeah. Main target yeah. being browns. And they, they were just, they were, yeah. yeah. Um, other systems on the surface, uh, there's a handful of brown duns, mayflies that I like. 
Royal Coachman caught me a lot. Mosquito patterns in northern Alberta. Uh, the offshore stuff and some of the northern lake stuff. Uh, streamers like what you would consider a coho streamer. Yeah. Um, let's yeah. say if we're at Great Central Lake, which is a, a very close lake for here. There are there are cuts out in that lake verified up to 14 pounds. And we go sight hunt those. Used to. I sold the boat. Uh, I'm looking for another one at this point. And years and years, me and, me and the young fellow that was working the rivers with me, I talked to you about, went up there mm-hmm. and used uh, an egg sack alvian yeah. and sight hunted those things. And you'd lay it out in front of them. They'd be up in the shallows hunting those alvians. And you'd lay it out in front of them like a good 20 feet because they're in shallow water and they're gun shy. I mean, you get 20 feet, 30 feet out in front of them, wait for them to come along and just give it the lightest twitch so it just moved and hang on. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Heart stopping stuff. <laughs> I love it. Hey, so let's talk where you talk fly fishing or fishing in general. Like, is there, is it social media for you? You mentioned, uh, yeah, you mentioned Fly BC. Yeah. Um, is there a fly shop locally? Uh, kind of a brew pub. Yeah, there is. There is. Um, but they're not as they're not as into it as they used to be. Uh, gone fishing um, is here in Pork, at the Nanaimo, Courtney, Comox, mm-hmm. and uh, they do fishing of all stripes, and as well as firearms hunting, et cetera, et cetera. And uh, when they actually when they were they moved to a larger store here, when they were in the smaller store. I thought they had a bigger selection of the fly stuff, unless you were thinking ocean bucktails for coho and stuff, right? But the regular stream stuff, they had a better selection at the old place. Hmm. Before we started kind of hitting record here, you, I asked you how you pronounce your last name, and, and, and <laughs> the name that came to mind was Kenny Stabler when you said Matt Stabler. So tell me, uh, sports, are you influenced by any sports, any relation? Give me some stories on the background of your sports history. Sure, yeah. Uh, Kenny's, Kenny was my father's cousin. Well, anybody with that last name is pretty well interconnected. When my mother was alive, she did a huge, huge investigation of genetics, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, and came up with lists. And pretty well everybody in North America that has that last name is related. And so, obviously, I met him at family dues many times played scrimmage together and broke my collarbone the first time playing scrimmage with him and my brother <laughs> turfed me you know <laughs> my brother grew up to be bigger than me unfortunately <laughs> uh yeah so um under you know so i was a raiders fan obviously but uh, i watched a little bit of baseball i was a real football fanatic for a long time not so much hockey played it a bit but didn't really follow it all that much. And then mm-hmm. when they had their hissy fits this last go around, I just boycotted them. <laughs> you know, I used to watch football quite a bit uh, and I rooted for Saskatchewan an awful long time. Yeah. Uh, Lancaster and Reed were just fantastic performers. They were reminiscent of Stabler and two of his uh, catchers. I mean, like, it was heart stopping yeah. stuff. You're down to two minutes and they're two and a full go away and they pull it off. Whoa. <laughs> But you, since those days, I just, uh, the fascination is no longer there. I just don't yeah. do it anymore. Well, you're talking about a couple huge fan base teams here. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, what's the biggest lesson you've learned 
through all your time on the water? Like, what what keeps bringing you back, Matt? Why why do you why do you do this? It's an addiction. That's why I keep doing it. Hmm. Um, you want me to round out the profile from when we left Alberta? Sure. Yeah, let's do that. And then it it, it explains some of it. Sure. When I got out of school in Alberta, I worked for a significant period of time for Pisces Environmental. We took on the Old Man Dam project. We made the government there eat the line, no net loss of habitat. And our firm spent $42 million in three years making sure that that did not happen. Uh, An awful lot of those structures exist today. That's, and we're going back a significant period of time ago. And all, most of those structures and most of the work we did were absolutely fly fishing oriented because all of us in the firm were, worked out well. <laughs> then I got an offer from the Arctic uh, there. We were looking for a biologist to step into the role of senior marine fisheries and uh, terrestrial fisheries management. And um, I threw my name in the hat, didn't tell the wife. <laughs> uh, and they said, we, we'd like to interview you within these three days time period. And they said, okay, I can, I can meet you on the second day. Do not understand this. I won't be dressed up. I'm coming in from one shock team in the field to a habitat crew in a different field. I'm passing through Edmonton. I can sit down with you for two hours, absolute max. And then I've got to get out of there. They said, we're fine. Oh man, I walked into that interview and walked out of there and going, how the hell am I going to explain this to Linda? (laughs) (laughs) The hard part. (laughs) Yeah, I was like sitting with a bunch of buddies. And I go, Jesus. So long and short of it, she balled her eyes out all the way up there. And uh, I had a huge budget, $4.2 million operations budget. It's paid very well. I knew where to get more money. Uh, I knew the right contacts. Worked for an excellent, excellent committee. And we did absolutely fantastic work. And I mean, fantastic work. Preserved runs. and Stuff that PhD boys would have given their eye teeth. I was leading. And I knew it. And I worked my ass off to make certain that it worked well. Hmm. Um, That went on for quite a period. Of course, fished, caught lake trout on a fly. (laughs) Uh, I'll tell you one short little story. My Inuit buddies off Shingle Point, which is off the coast of the Yukon North Slope, were setting uh, uh, gillnets to catch the Arctic char that were feeding in the area. And the water was a little bouncy, not bad, but enough to rough it up by the shore. So the char didn't want to come into that. They wanted to stay out in the clear water. And I had been studying what they had been eating and they, they were little scuds, little shrimp with black eyes. And I had tied up about 40 of them. And so I put the belly boat in, <laughs> much to the Inuit's amazement, they're watching this with eyes just like white. What's the crazy white guy doing? Get the fly rod out, go out just past the nets, like 20, 30 feet. And almost every single cast, bam, 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 bam. <laughs> Where do I get one of those boats, buddy? <laughs> oh, yeah. Those were the days, weren't they? I, I yeah. love fishing out of belly oh, boats. Man. So uh, the funding envelope on that position ended up uh, running out of its steam, and uh, which there was a timeline on it. It was... Uh, part and parcel of the new Bialovic final agreement. And then my bosses came to me and said, 
would you consider running from a desk? And I said, absolutely not. You hired a field guy and that's what you got. And I'm not going to sit behind a desk. I won't do it. Uh, bring the ring, bring the replacements and I will train them. And I did and uh, wandered on through a dart in the map. That's basically how we ended up in Port Alberni. Really? When my brother-in-law's brother was down here, I just wanted to get away from winter and regroup. And my brother-in-law's brother was down here. And so we came down, chatted with him. I rented a shack, took a, took a loss on the place up north in Anubik, but that was to be expected. The government dumped 42 houses on the market the same month that I dumped ours onto it. So that burned. I, so I rented when we first came down. And we did nothing for a year. We were ran around the island and fished, hunted, had camped, and had a great time. And then um, a fellow who had worked in the Arctic uh, just previous to me doing so, who was working for DFO, heard that I was here. And he contracted me, and he, he called me and said, I'd like to run you as a contractor for the fisheries and oceans. Yep, okay, let's do it. So I did that for a bunch of years. And then in doing that, got to know a handful of trollers and got in with a couple of them real tight. And now I'm still on the water trolling, even though they only let us go five weeks a year and they call that a season. Uh, It's addicting. It's absolutely addicting. Hmm. Through that, what have I learned? Never, ever believe that anything you're focused on and think that this is the only way that it can happen is that way <laughs> always expect the unexpected and the, the same level patience because if you ain't got it you ain't gonna get it <laughs> i love it it seems yeah. to me like you've been somebody that's been able to go with the flow like when it comes to your career like you know you, you jig here you jag there you, you turn left here you and you end up where you're at and when we started this conversation you're like i'm working basically five weeks a year but you're still doing it so you must love it yeah oh yeah it's a like i said it's an addiction Hmm. uh my partner's in his 70s i'm in my 60s (laughs) we're still doing this and we grin like there we don't make an awful lot at it it's hard on the body at this age but you just grin from ear to ear when you're out there doing it I, mean, I love it. <laughs> so, so we got Matt Stabler on the line. Matt is out of Port Alberni, British Columbia, Canada. Um, he does saltwater fishing charters. He has a uh, retired marine biologist, knows his way uh, across the waters in uh, well, both the States and Canada. Commercial fisherman now and was guiding recently, doing some big game stuff. So w- w- where are you at now in your fly fishing? Is that something that you kind of, is it on the back burner a little bit right now? Or are you still managing to get yeah, out? Yeah, I still get out occasionally, but the whole, brutally honest, sport fishing now is uh, because of things in my life and health issues, et cetera. Sport fishing now has become limited to maybe 30 40 days a year whereas previously it was 200 days a year if i could do it wow at least 100 all of the time and i understand the limitations that have pushed me here and i just i'll tell you what i am damn happy i got the memories (laughs) and i'm damn happy i did it while i could go as hard as i could 
Well, I'm damn happy that you uh, decided to take my call because I, I I talked to Randy Pascal, your good buddy, and uh, he said, "Man, you need to get Matt on the show. He may not come on, but give him a call." <laughs> yeah, I, I'm usually pretty bloody private. Yeah, but he got a hold of me before you did and said, "Hey, buddy, would you do this for me?" Well, <laughs> said, sure, did. all right, Flutie, no problem. I'll, I'll deal with it. No problem. I appreciate and it. It's I, I find that conversing with you has been quite enjoyable absolutely 100 percent. it brings back memories that sometimes simmer in the background and you forget about you know well and you seem to go into you seem to be sitting on a lot of stories man so we'll, we'll dig into some of these i so we talked about why you do this why you know the addiction i think that's fair you're the only person i've done 214 interviews and nobody's told me it's an addiction and i totally know it is because <laughs> you're but you're damn straight and some are more healthy than others right in my <laughs> Mind, yeah. If this is a healthy one, let's follow that, right? Yep. Fill yep. in the blank for me, Matt. When when you're not fly fishing or you're spending time in the water fishing, what are you normally doing? Well, I do a lot of yard work, garden work. I hunt hard. Uh, I help local ranchers out. Like um, I also like I'm a butcher, and I help them out with their livestock and take care of that cut wrap make sausages uh like i said focus all heavily on hunting play around on the internet a fair bit walk my dog every single day <laughs> kind of dog you got uh wolf cross I, we've had linda and i've been raising wolf hybrids for just over 40 years hmm. and uh this is our old gal now um the boogeyman boogs his real name was amaruk but everybody called him boogs because I called him the boogeyman. <laughs> he was 145 pounds. <laughs> wow. And he was incredibly aloof around everybody except Forbesy and Tad. And those two, for whatever reason, he decided they're my buddies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he was, it's the mum of this one. He was half Timberwolf and half Alaskan Husky, the Timberwolf off Yukon North Slope, the Husky out of Inuvik. Her mother was a Silu, half Arctic wolf off of Victoria, a.k.a. Holman Island, yeah. and the Quarter Shepherd, Quarter Lab off of this island. And that's, we mixed those two. They had 22 pups, and a bunch of buddies got them, and I know where most of them ended up. Kimmy was one of the last litter. Yeah. And uh, she's, most of her kin have gone. She's now 11 and a half. Hmm. But all of us always walk all together. That's the way to stay in shape. Keep going, keep going, keep sounds, going. Sounds like an amazing animal. I mean, is it, uh, you're talking, I'm a huge dog person. I can't imagine not having a dog in the house. It's just for me, it would be yeah. like, uh, weird. Yeah, I'm currently looking for another one right now, a pup. Hmm. we kind of been reminiscing on your career a little bit, but uh, tell me, Matt, the best gig you've ever had. Like, what to date... Maybe you're doing it now. I don't know. But what's, what's your favorite job if you look back over your career? Oh, man, that's tough. Uh, I would say there's two of them that are basically side by side. Both of them had incredible opportunities and incredible fun and incredible people to work with. And the first one would be working with Pisces in Alberta uh, as a fisheries consultant. And Man, those were some damn fine times. I really, really enjoyed that. And the, the being able to go fishing when I wanted. I mean, they, the, the one time we went in to do an assessment 
uh, of another spot off of Cardinal River Coal. And I looked up and there's a monster bighorn sheep there. And it's looking back at me and he's way outside of the boundaries that he should be in the season open the next day. And I phoned my boss and he knew what it was before I even said a word. He said, you seen him, didn't you? <laughs> he said, go get him. You could take the little cowboy and then you could take Mark with the big machine and a horse when you get him. Yeah, good luck. Don't take more than three, four days. Day two, <laughs> we were coming back. Wow. And then we went back to work. I mean, like, fringe benefits like that and those people like that. That's awful close to the heart. But the other one... The work out of the Fisheries Joint Management Committee in Anubik at the there was a, there's an office up there called the Joint Secretariat who was run by Norm Snow. Norm's still with us. He is a double or triple PhD biologist extraordinaire, and he treated his people like gold. Hmm. I mean, if you did the job and you excelled at it, he prevented anybody from getting in your way. <laughs> and he encouraged you all the way along. <laughs> That's awesome. I love it. You know, I had more uh, support helicopter time, fixed wing aircraft time from Air North and others. I couldn't use it all. I could not use it all. You know, and I, I'd go do work over on Holman Island or Victoria Island with their Arctic char. And half the time I'd be fishing them. <laughs> but I could justify it because we tagged them in the fisheries that we were doing in the rivers and they'd catch them the next year. We get to see what their range was. So, I mean, that one was, and the camaraderie there. Uh, When I walked into that office, it was just by fluke and they hadn't told me, but a fellow I went to high school with and played football with was in the next office as the wildlife biologist. (laughs) That's all right. Yeah, him and I just had a lengthy chat again today. <laughs> just today. I mean, like, so hmm. how do you how do you decide between those two? Yeah, fair. Okay, let's flip this coin. What's the worst gig you've ever had? Oh, driving truck. Uh, yeah, really? yeah. Oh, yeah. Hmm. I didn't like it. Uh, I guess no welding. I guess I don't. I did a bunch of work after I got out of high school. I decided I didn't want to continue on with school immediately, much to my father's chagrin. <laughs> and uh, I moved out, and then I took on a bunch of jobs that were basically menial. Uh, I cooked for a long time. I love cooking, yeah. uh, but I realized it wasn't for me. Uh, I still do an awful lot. I do up the lion's share at the house. Um, drove a truck for a while. I oh, didn't really care for that all that much, although my buddies were good. Well, I think the welding was probably the worst because mm-hmm. of the fumes and the effects that it have on your eyes. My eyes are paying for that this late in the game. Mm-hmm. Hey, of all of them, that's probably the one I would choose. That it, Nope, I'm all, I shouldn't mm-hmm. have done that one. Do you um, use those eyes to tie any flies these days, or is that something you never... No, I can't anymore. Yeah. I can't see good enough detail anymore. Yeah. Like I used to. Yeah. And thankfully, I've got boxes and boxes because I was a fanatic for the longest time. And yeah. I've got lots and lots. But uh, yeah. for here, now I only use a few specific patterns. And mostly, my main fun here now is either the river. Well, the steelhead here pretty well collapsed. I built a lifestyle around these buggers, which is why I got into the tour. 
And that's why I was doing, because I was fishing 100 days or 120 days a year with my buddy and my several other guys on this river. And we smoked them. And then they just went away. I still got buddies doing it, but they're getting like six fish a season. Uh, on the stamp? Yep. And they're oh, putting man. in the same effort as we did all the way along. Well, right? you, so that that used it wasn't that long ago because I can remember I worked at a at a, a fishing hunting fishing store here in the valley um, in the uh, I want to say when was it nineties, uh, and the stamp was going then it was a mm-hmm. you know you I know it was a lot of hatchery fish but it was a lot of fish. Yeah, it was. There was a lot of fish, and then uh, several things happened. They believe that climate change affected them to some extent. Hmm. Um, my belief is threefold. First of all, the river went acidic in the late 90s because of upstream logging, hmm. and it never recovered. It is just now slowly starting to recover. Hmm. There are some fish in this system, but I'm not going to tell you where. Yeah, Look yeah. up where limestone exists above it. You'll figure it out. But that's it. That's the only hint. So uh, that was hit number one. Took the bugs out. There was nothing to eat. Right. Uh, hit number two, they were being scooped up like mad in wall-to-wall nets during the sockeye fishery. Basically wiped out entirely the summer runs, which used to be brilliant and more numerous than the winters. Hmm. And then the winters, uh, they picked up a virus from the sockeye. And the hatchery production on them had to be culled completely several years in a row. Yeah. So that disappeared off the radar, and it had a bad effect on the wild stock as well. Triple whammy, man. They just they just fell off the rails. Hey, this is kind of an off-the-wall question. Do you know Pat Demeester by chance? I I had Pat on the show last week, and he was telling me, he's a big steelhead guy, and he was telling me, in his opinion, one of the biggest issues with steelhead is the fact that they the sockeye and the coho, and those fish are so targeted for food fisheries that that in his opinion, has kind of been... Uh, they run with them. Run, run right? with them, sorry, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. but yeah, and that they, also, they are... They're targeted... Those target salmon species mm-hmm. are what causes an awful lot of grief to the populations because these things just aren't reported. And they... Back in the old days, I got infuriated when I found a good handful of of uh, steelhead tossed in the ditch and abandoned with net marks on them. And you knew exactly where they came from. Mm. And you phone it in and you're told, get away from it as fast as possible. You didn't see a thing. Mm. Yeah, so there's that issue. And then you look at the Thompson, what's going on there? Well, the whole world understands that it's that chum fishery that does it. And that's what takes them out. But the government isn't willing to step in and intercede and stop that. What they're doing... Uh, with these foolish rolling closures up and down the coast. You know, nothing at all is being gained by that. And you are seeing economic hardship in the coastal communities as a consequence of this. Uh, My, for instance, Area G, I go up north. Now, a certain date in September comes along. I've got to stop fishing up there because we might catch a uh, steelhead which we haven't caught in the entire fleet for 15 years now. Hmm. Uh, not a one. Zero. Wow. Zip. Nada. You know? And then the, I moved down to the Yuki area, and I fished that for four or five days. Mm-hmm. And then it's closed down, and our season's over. And we leave fish in the water because we're 
protecting a unicorn that doesn't exist. Wow. Yeah, interesting. How This is a silly question. I know nothing about the world of commercial fisheries. How are you, when you say you're on a trawler, how, how are you fishing for, for these salmon? There's three lines of salmon on the boat. Uh, on our boat, first first uh, downrigger way, we call them girdies. Right. They're hydraulically driven. Uh, first one will have a 60-pound cannonball on it. The next one, uh, 45, so it shears out, and the rear one, the 50. And every fathom or six feet or every two fathoms or 12 feet, there's a set of marks on the wire that goes down to it. The wire is a really heavy-duty wire. Um, And what you have is a terminal piece. In the old days, we ran flashers and hoochies and spoons. Mm -hmm. These days, all we run is plugs. That's all they allow Mm -hmm. us to run anymore. They've backed us into that corner. And that's all we do as a consequence. But, uh, yeah, so what you got is a clip that goes onto that wire between the marks. Yeah. And anywhere from 30 to 80 feet of monofilament between you and the fish. And your hands, your arms, are the rods. Wow. Really? <laughs> See why it's addicting? So you are. <laughs> your hand liner. So, so basically, yeah. are you... Um, the fact that you're fishing plugs, does that somehow kind of, you know, get that sport fishing, that sport fisherman in you kind of comes out or what? Oh, yeah. Well, yeah. like the, the whole thing's a game. Figure out what they're on, figure out what they need. Yeah. You know, I paint plugs. I paint plugs for the boat. And I'll tell you, I've got a couple that are just sporties who will never get those secrets out of me. Yeah, no, fair. <laughs> Except for a couple of I, real tight buddies. <laughs> no, I get it. I'm, I'm not even going to go there, but... Yeah, I, I think you know, we've, stayed, we've stayed in the top 5% of our entire fleet for the last 20 years. Huh. And most years, we're either number one, two, or three. And there's a reason for that. We huh. study the heck out of it. We've got really good electrics on the boat. I mean, really good. And we study that we pay real attention to the terminals and how to fish it. Okay, so you, know, you put a you put a biologist together with a guy that had been doing it forty years. When I come along, yeah. it better work. <laughs> yeah, no, exactly. And it, it's rare that I have somebody on the show that has the science background and the uh, the field background at the same time yeah. and the commercial fishing. It's like it's like the trifecta. It's interesting to me. So, mm-hmm. what, are you targeting? Sockeye, Coho, um, Chinook? They haven't, well, yeah, we used to target Sockeye. We may again in the future. You never know. Yeah, it's possible if, if the runs ever get into the multi-millions. Uh, what they have done in the commercial fishery, we used to have what was called an area license. <clears throat> the area license allowed us to catch all the bottom fish, you know, lings, halibut, rockfish, salmon, all the salmon, pretty well everything out there that swam then one by one by one they have knocked them off today we are allowed to retain chinook period hmm. yeah. what's what's your favorite salmon if you're going to sit down and for table fare and i know you say you like cooking but what um i pretty much think i know the answer but i'm going to ask it anyway what's your <laughs> go, what's your favorite what to eat yeah adam sockeye from Ooh. the west side of the island in Peak Run, they yeah. are the they are little fat burgers. <laughs> yeah, sockeye. Not and that then, little. Okay, let's put them in put them in order here. Sockeye followed by 
uh, either Winter Springs or uh, Coho. Yeah, yeah, I feel that. Do you ever? Yeah. Would you ever eat a pink? <laughs> Oh, I did Sorry. once. Sorry. Because I, <laughs> I feel the same way. It's like, I don't eat trout. We let them all go. Because to me, yeah, salmon are so trout. much better. But yeah. you get yeah. you get the sockeyes just got that oily, dark flesh. It's so good. And the oh, co- coho for me is next. Like, I just think that, yeah. uh, and I, yeah. yeah, I just hope those. And I, I, I also like springs, but the winter springs are the best. And the ones, I guess it's because I've caught so many in the summer. I really like the springs for the fighting. And there's a certain size, 25 to 35 pounds. That thing's going to show you a hell of an interesting time. Hmm. But table fare, not so much. What do you think about the white springs as far as... They're fantastic. If you... Okay, here's an interesting one for you. Amongst our fleet, the white springs that we catch offshore before they ever get a sniff of fresh water are preferred by almost every single troller out there. Is that right? Yeah, I'm one of them. It's yep. that's interesting because I um, used to fish for those in some of the you know the uh, the lower mainland systems and have taken a few and never really got it. I'm like, well, I I I don't. Get yeah, well, it. once the the problem with them is they have their oil content is absolutely through the ceiling as compared to a red, and once they hit that fresh water, mm-hmm. they change really rapidly compared to the reds, and they go off incredibly if you don't get it a day even for me like if you don't get it four or five hours into the fresh water don't eat it and why you can is smell it, it silly question but you know i'm not a biologist you were what why why is the meat white does it have to do with keratin or is it what's the deal with that yeah yeah you hit you hit it on there um it's a genetic it's a genetic thing the reds are able to uh ingest keratin and infuse that and they pick up the pigment from that. Okay. The whites, they eat eat it, they get it, they get the keratin coming in, you know, with the uh, krill and everything else that they're eating out there with the krills, the high red content for most. Right. And it, they absorb the oil, but they don't absorb the pigment. It's just a, genet- it's just oh, a okay. genetic difference. That's so, all it is. So it's not so much that they're eating different foods. No, no, no. They eat identical yeah. foods. Ah, yeah. Interesting. I had no idea. Always curious about that. Um, for those that don't know what we're talking about, we're talking about Chinook or what do they call them in the States? Silver? No, spring. Uh, spring. Kings down Kings. there. Kings, Kings down there. Kings. Yeah, we call them Chinook or Springs up here. Right. So, and there's some runs that are very big runs that have strictly just white meat. And some yeah. of them have the, the, the you know, that, that pink, reddish pink. But yeah. Yeah, we call them marbles. Okay. They're ones in between and then reds. Hmm. Red marble and white, yeah. I want to take it back to fly fishing, and I know you might have to go back to the vault on this one, but um, I want you to paint me a picture, Matt, of your dream day. So think where if somebody put a fly rod in your hand today and you could go fish anywhere, kind of recreate that for us. What, what would you be throwing for? What kind of flies you throwing? Uh, you know, that system. Well, like you mean locally, Canada kind of thing? You, you know what? It's a blank canvas, man. Anywhere. No, you know what I really should have, what I really should have done and what I really would have liked to have uh, tried was fishing for Goliath, uh, Goliath tigerfish in Africa hmm. with a fly rod. I didn't have a fly rod. None of my buddies had a fly rod. 
and we caught them up to 40 pounds and they are absolutely terrific fighters just absolutely spectacular hmm. and you don't get your mitts anywhere near the business end when you get them to the boat though <laughs> that i should have you know if i'd have had a fly rod along i would have figured out a way to make that work because it was so much fun you know for that particular fishery that was in northern zimbabwe uh, a couple of times and what we would do is go to one of the lakes and catch cichlids of all things, aquarium fish. Oh yeah. And then go float it down the river and boom. And it was consistent enough that I knew that if I had a fly rod, that that would really do the job. Um, for local, there's very, very little that beats that cutthroat fishery out at Great Central Lake, except uh, casting over bait balls outside of Cape Beal, Banfield, when you've got springs and coho actively keeping the bait on the surface. Oh, yeah. And you strip through that and you get a whack and you don't know if it's a four to six pound coho or a 20 pound spring. That, that's heart stopping stuff. Is that in the kelp beds or is this in the open ocean? No, that's in the open ocean. Just took that little whaler out there with a real good buddy, did this repeatedly. And uh, we just idle around and wait for them, the birds to go insane. As soon as the birds went insane, you zip up, stay off of the bait ball so you don't spook them down and go to work at all. <laughs> Spooled too many times doing that, but I'll tell you what, it's worth it. <laughs> that sounds amazing. I've actually tried that on, like, so I'm in the interior, but some of our lakes are full of kokanee, and we'll see bait balls once in a while where the seagulls are really working it. And then all of a sudden you yeah. see them, like, it looks like they're jumping out of the water to get away from something. Yeah, <laughs> they are. Yeah, yeah, that can yeah. be fun, but I, I, it, it never seems to work out. My hopes are always bigger than what actually happens. But <laughs> hmm, well, keep at it; it'll happen. Yeah, good. Get stuff. the right imitation there, and <laughs> when there's scales in the water and they're hammering them up, man, they can't help themselves. What do you use for fly patterns when you're trying to create like a herring or uh, you know uh, a polar bear, polar bear and crystal flash? Okay, like a bucktail. Yeah, 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 and then some of the polar uh, is dyed, right? So that you get that, like on the back, you want that uh, a dark green blue on yeah. the very top of the back fade, a little greener a stripe of chartreuse, and then mother of pearl with the flash in the belly. You do those guaranteed, guaranteed. You do those pretty sparse, Matt. Uh, like yeah, the, yeah, okay, yeah. Hmm. Cool. Is there anything about uh, the fly fishing world that kind of gets under your skin that irks you? Are we are we in a good spot right now, or uh... Uh, okay? There's a handful of guys out there that consider that to be the only way to catch a fish. I call it the holier than thou attitude. <laughs> and yeah, I yeah I was there for a while. I was. Now I've become. And I've even progressed beyond this step, but for a long time, I was the most efficient method that works. And yeah, yeah, fly fishing fits right in there at times, but it isn't always the answer. And some of the purists come across to others as denigrating as a consequence of that. That I don't like. Yeah, I feel that. <laughs> yeah. I, um, the challenge, the challenge today 
it's getting more and more expensive all the time. That trend is not going to quit. I don't think that enough younger numbers are being recruited at this point. And I don't know if that trend is going to stop. Mm. So you're saying get younger anglers into the sport to, yeah. to grow the sport. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's how you keep it alive, man. Well, I think, I don't know, man. I know what you're saying, but I, there's, there's a lot of people fly fishing now. It kind of freaks me out. Sometimes I'll go to my favorite lake and I'll be like, man, there's 10 other boats where there used to be none. And Ooh. you know, um, I don't know. It's just an observation I've noticed the past, I'd, I'd say before COVID, like, you know, like maybe five, last 10 years anyways, there's, I think there's a lot of younger people getting into it, but I know what you're saying. It's like, <laughs> uh, I don't know. It's, I, this is the struggle, Matt, I always have is, okay, you want to talk about it. You want to kind of document. Everyone likes to have that picture of that beauty fish, but at the same time, you almost, the trepidation of actually putting it on social media. <laughs> You know, yeah. <laughs> make sure there's no recognizable tree in the background. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It's yeah. it's a, oh, yeah, it's a weird dance, you know. Yeah, it is. Yeah, and yeah. I mean, you, well, like I got a handful of uh, coastal creeks out here that still have steelhead in them. I will never name them. And if you look at any picture that I ever post from any of those, there's a hands, there's you know a face. I said a hands and a fish. Yeah. Well, that's, <laughs> that's it. I, I get a kick out of that. I think it's headless fishermen or something that, uh, and I like it too because they all they show is the fish. And yeah. I think that's. I mean, as somebody that makes their living fishing, you would understand this more than anybody. It's not like you can just. It's nice to share your knowledge, but you also don't want to throw it all out there because you just never know who's going to use it. Yeah. Oh yeah. yeah. Absolutely. Hmm. You know I. Amongst our, I think the current thing in the commercial amongst our fleet, there's a handful of guys that are of the mindset that uh, if they don't want to bite what they bit 15 years ago, screw them. Um, yeah, well, that puts you low man on the totem pole. Yeah. And there's a handful of guys that come to me and to other buddy boats and say, what was it this time? And we're, we openly share it with them. It's our competition, but it's a band of brothers. Yeah. Sure as heck won't see any of us posting that on the internet, though. No, no. But that's that to me is interesting because I, I find that with fly fishing, too. It's like what worked 5, 10 years ago not, doesn't necessarily work today. It does seem to change. Sometimes you go back into the vault and you pull back an old pattern that, like, man, this used to be lights out 30 years ago. Let's try this again. And it might work, but it seems really cyclical to me, and I, I struggle to yeah. follow it. Yeah. Yep, I agree with that. I see that same thing in the, both the rivers and the saltwater. But mm. I'll tell you, you know, there's some like those Albion, the, the egg sack Albions mm-hmm. in the spring. That's never going to go away as long as they're as long as they're being produced. That's the main forage. So some things are time immemorial. They're never ever going to yeah. quit. Yeah, it's in their DNA. It's just kind of carved yeah. in their brain. Yeah. If if I know you got to go soon, you said you got we're running out of daylight. But uh, I want to throw this at you because you're probably sitting on some gems. Anything bizarre happened to you in your time on the water? Any kind of stories that you just <laughs> you still shake your head about? Like I can't believe that happened. Lots, mm, lots. Um. Lots. <laughs> 
I'll yeah, okay. I'll tell you one. It, this wasn't fishing. This was moose hunting. Uh, when I lived in Saskatchewan, my best friend was a mixture of uh, French, Cree, and Apache. And him and I hunted and fished together all of the time. We were in northern Saskatchewan. We had the we had the fly rods and uh, gear rods and rifles, and we were looking for a moose. And <laughs> we we came down this one little channel, and I called a moose in, and he stopped just outside the screen of willows. We can't see him; he can't see us at all. But we're only about twenty yards apart. And I keep trying, and he grunts back, and he moves around and moves around trying to get an eyeball on us, but it doesn't happen. My buddy, just light tap on my arm, picks up a bailing can and goes, cow. And I went, long cow call, and then he poured the bailing can into the river. To the moose, apparently, that was the cow peeing in the river, <laughs> and here he came. He come off that cut bank. And his right rear hind leg went right through the middle of that canoe and dumped it and dumped us all over wow. the river. And away he went through the forest. So uh, we collected <laughs> what we could, dived up the rest, cleaned the guns up after fetching them out of the muck. Oh, Lordy. Wow. Lost one rod, lost one rod and one uh, gearbox out of it but got everything else took us three days to patch that canoe up with t-shirts and spruce gum what <laughs> spruce gum <laughs> that we boiled that's, on a little fire <laughs> that's a I, hate, I still hate that moose <laughs> <laughs> wow awesome yeah, it's, yeah i like asking that question because they don't always come to mind i have a feeling you're probably sitting on a hundred but it's oh, like man, it's like there are so many that they I need something to trigger the memory, you know, yeah, there's yeah. so many, so yeah. many of them, just crazy things over the years. There was another one. This was the troller though. We were coming in, uh, uh, cause, uh, we wanted to go deliver. And all of a sudden the boat just started shaking. Like, the the main bearing was gone. And I mean, shaking. And I'm like, Whoa, shut her down right now. What the hell's going on? We throw the main, go running downstairs to see if there's water coming in or what the heck's going on. Nope, everything looks good. What's what is this? Well, maybe I'll fire it back up and see. And then on the radio, one of the guys says, "Hell of an earthquake just outside of us." Did you guys feel that? The whole ocean like a bowl of jelly. Wow, <laughs> wicked. Huh. No, uh, no tsunami or anything. Nope. Hmm. Wild. Well, listen, man, I'm I'm so appreciative that you took the time to kind of share some of your story today. And I know we can go so many ways and you're sitting on some beauties. But, uh, Matt, thanks for doing this. I, I appreciate you sharing uh, your knowledge with us today, which is, is, is super deep. And, and maybe we can have another chinwag at some point and uh, sure. go down some other yeah. rabbit holes. Yeah, yeah, you betcha. Oh, I'll tell you one last one Yeah, on the, on the fishing thing. We, <laughs> we, we were going into an area. Fish steelhead from a stamp. This is going back, I don't know, 18 years, something like that, 16 years. And when we get to the trailhead, there's some uh, a foreigner fellow there. He could speak English, uh, Norwegian, I believe, but it wasn't wasn't all that good. And uh, a buddy of his that was German that spoke no English whatsoever. And uh, but I could speak a little German, so they they wanted to accompany us. And I'm like, yep, fine. All four of us will go. 
And we're walking along, walking along, getting down towards the runs. I want to fish. And all of a sudden, woof, woof. And two cubs go barking up a tree right in front of me. And I'm like, oh, Jesus. <laughs> and I just put my hands up as big as I could. And I said, listen, everybody, uh, back up behind me. And uh, back up slowly, okay? I'm going to try and deal with this girl, and we can back her down. Now, she pounces on me. Somebody get a fillet knife in her. And I look quickly over my shoulder. They're gone. My buddy's standing there. The Europeans are <laughs> bolted, man. They are just gone. Mama comes out on the trail, does about 10 or 12 of the bouncy steps on her front end, popping her teeth at me. And I just look, I got no interest in your kids. Get them back off. Get them the hell out of here. And after a couple of minutes, she settled down, went and collected the kids, wandered. My and my buddy went back up. Those guys have already made it to the parking lot and left. <laughs> <laughs> we were just going to tell them the coast was clear, you know. That's <laughs> uh, how to clear a room in 30 seconds. Yeah. Love it. All right, my friend, I appreciate it. Have a great season out on the water, and uh, hopefully you get in some nice, some nice salmon and, and plenty of them. Okay, thank you very much, sir. Appreciate it. Don't hang up on me. This is, uh, you've been listening tonight to a chat with Matt Stabler. Matt is out of Port Alberni, British Columbia, Canada, retired marine biologist, commercial fisherman, and guide. Thanks for joining us this time around. We'll catch you next time. The Fly Fishing 97 podcast is brought to you by theflycrate.com. Thank you for listening to the Fly Fishing 97 podcast. Your feedback matters. Let us know if there's a person or topic you'd like discussed. Email us at mark at flyfishing97.com. Until next time, tight lines and we'll see you on the water.